0: Hebrews chapter 11. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Amen. It's good to sing praises, to have the freedom to sing praises. When you watch a video like that where people's churches are ransacked and burned down, you're thankful for what the Lord has given us in America. And we never take advantage of the freedoms that we have. November 29th, Time Magazine cover had these words a few weeks ago Who needs marriage? Who needs marriage? And according to the research of Time Magazine and of the Pew Forum, they found that America's attitudes toward marriage have changed over the years. This is what the chief researcher said about marriage. We found that marriage, whatever its social, spiritual or symbolic appeal, is in purely practical terms just not as necessary as it used to be. It's just not necessary anymore. Marriage as a matter of fact, time reports that 40% of Americans, 40% of Americans believe that marriage is now obsolete. Up from 28% in 1978. Now, I'm going to address something this morning that a lot of times we don't even think about. It's become so commonplace in our culture that we don't even we don't even flinch at it. It's the whole idea of living together before marriage. Cohabitation. What's happening in our culture is this. Not only are people not just getting married, but people are living together before marriage and living together instead of marriage with no intention of ever even getting married and i can't tell you how many christian young people i know that live together before marriage have sex before marriage nobody even cares anymore and it's it's amazing when a, a young couple comes and sits down with me and wants to get married and we go through premarital counseling and I ask the proverbial question, are you living together? And if they say yes, I say, I'm sorry, I can't marry you. Unless you promise me to not live together and promise me that you won't have sex before marriage. And you should see the jaws drop on a lot of these young kids. And you may be saying, well, Sean, is that too radical? Are you too old-fashioned? That, that's just that's not going to fly in our culture today. Because everybody lives together. One of the reasons we're not making a huge impact as Christians in our culture is because our Christianity looks just like the culture. We haven't been radically obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ and lived a life that's different. And you see, it's no surprise that we live in a culture that's pagan, a culture that is hostile, a culture that is all for tolerance, right? except for when you mention Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation a culture that's tolerant for all types of ideas except for when you talk about what the Bible says about issues of of morality and issues of sanctity of life and issues of marriage, we automatically get pushback from the culture. We are in a culture that, let's just face it, doesn't like the message of Christianity. And so let's just be real honest this morning. We've been studying over the past few months these heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And if we want to be people that live as these in hebrews chapter 11 we are going to have to expect opposition if you want to live a radically different courageous risk-taking passionately sold-out life for jesus christ expect opposition expect hostility as a matter of fact expect persecution what did jesus say let's just listen to the words of jesus this morning in mark chapter 13 and you come across these scriptures at the time you're like thanks Jesus you've really encouraged my day Mark 13:13 13, 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved we will be hated because of the name of Jesus what did Paul say Paul says in 2 Timothy 3:12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Then the question is not if persecution is going to come. The question is not if the hostility is going to come. The question is when is it going to come and how are we going to handle it? How are we going to handle the opposition? Now, opposition and hostility and persecution comes in many different forms. Like we saw in the video, if you live in Sudan or in Iran or in Indonesia and places like that, the, the, the hostility is more intense than maybe what we experience here in America. But you guys have told me over the years, even over the past few weeks, a lot of you have told me how you struggle with the hostility, whether it's with a family member or whether it's at the job place or whether it's just a relationship that you're at, you're you're feeling the tension of what it means to stand up for Jesus Christ in a world that just doesn't want to hear it. And that's exactly the same thing that these Hebrew Christians were facing in this book of Hebrews. They were facing imprisonment. They were facing being thrown in jail. They were facing having their property confiscated. They were facing intense persecution and so what the writer of hebrews does is he inserts hebrews chapter 11 in the middle of this book as a way to encourage these struggling christians to remain fast to hold fast to their faith remember they were wanting to throw in the towel they were wanting just to chuck the whole christian faith thing and just go back to a life of ease so here's the overarching theme for today i just want to warn you we're going to cover the whole old testament today are you ready because the writer does. We'll get it done in 30 minutes, I promise you. Here's the overarching theme for today. Authentic faith is empowered, is empowered to persefue- persevere through great hardships, sometimes as triumphant victors, other times as tragic victims. You see, that's true in our own lives, right? There are times in your as mine life where we experience victories for God, right? We experience the great power of God, the hand of God. Things are going well. We seem to be doing really well with the Lord. But there's other times when we experience hardships. We experience difficulties. We experience struggles. And so all of us, we're going to have both of those experiences. We're going to have the highs and we're going to have the lows. And what really counts in the end is our faith. So please, Please, I beg you as your pastor, do not buy the lie of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Everywhere you turn, it seems like you hear from the airwaves, you hear from Christian TV, you hear from everywhere that God wants you to be Wealthy? God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to have your best life now, and that the Christian life is not going to have any problems. They're not going to have any struggles. You're not going to have any issues. You're going to be. You're going to. If you're sick or you're poor, there must be something wrong with your faith. So you've got this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel there. And let, and let me just be real honest with you. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be stressed out. I don't want persecution. It would be foolish for me to stand up here and say, I wish those things upon me. None of us here would want to wish those things upon us, but we have to remember that God is sovereign, and in his providence, he determines what is going to happen in your life. Sometimes, some of you will walk out this room today, and you will have a life that is free of a lot of these things. Some of you will walk out this room, and you'll have a life of a lot of hardships. And we can't control that. Only God is in charge of that. So what matters in the end is your faith. Is your faith active? Is your faith radical? Are you passionately being obedient to God's call on your life? Are you willing to face whatever comes your way? We come to Hebrews chapter 11. The very last section here. Now up to this point, he's been focusing on individuals and giving us a description of these individuals' faith. And now in rapid-fire succession, because he's running out of time, he's going to fill up the gap and give us the rest of the Old Testament. So are you ready? Let's read together Hebrews eleven thirty-two 32 through 40 and see how the author brings this chapter to a close. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This passage of Scripture is is, is easily categorized into three sections. The first section focuses on the heroes of the faith that had amazing exploits for God. They did amazing things. God did powerful things through their lives. The second section is people that had powerful things happen in their lives, but they were tortured, they were martyred, they were killed, they suffered. And then at the very end, he draws it to a close and says, here's how you and I fit into Hebrews chapter 11, how you and I fit into this hall of faith. So let's first look at those heroes who were triumphant. And he starts with Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament, you know that these were judges. Now, when we think of judges, we think of a guy in a black suit that that, that pounds a gavel. In the Old Testament, a judge was a military leader. And the period of the judges was at the end of Joshua's conquest, where they've conquested the promised land up to that point in time where king Saul comes on the scene it's really a, a really dark period in Israel's history the period of the judges and so what the writer of Hebrews is assuming is that you know your Old Testament now a lot of you may not know these Old Testament stories what he's going to do is he's going to assume that you know these Old Testament stories you probably know a lot of these but if you don't know the Old Testament I encourage you to go back and in our Bible reading program as a matter of fact out there on the foyer table we've got the Bible reading programs ready for you to do for next year. I encourage you to read the whole Bible in a year. You get to hear about all these wonderful stories that happened in the Old Testament. But he's assuming we know about what's going on. So let's start with Gideon. That's where he starts. What do we know about Gideon? Gideon was a wimpy little guy that was hiding out in the luggage when the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, you're going to lead a mighty battle for the Lord he's hiding in the luggage it's interesting in Judges 6 12 we find these words an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him the Lord is with you O mighty man of valor which was kind of a joke because if you know anything about the story of Gideon he was not a mighty man of valor he was hiding in the luggage and then God does something weird do you remember the story of Gideon Okay, Gideon, you're going to go up against the Midianites, a huge army. And you've got 32,000 troops, but that's too much. I want you to cut the troops down to 10,000. But that's still too much, Gideon. I want you to get the troops down to 300 men. This ragtag group of 300 men that are armed only with trumpets and with jugs of oil as torches to go out and fight this huge army. Now, what was the size of the army that these 300 men would fight? Well, in Judges chapter 7, verse 12, we find out the size of the army. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, and as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So this group of 300 men goes out and routs this huge army, Gideon. Now go down to verse 34 for just a moment in Hebrews. You'll see some, some things here. Now look at halfway through there quenched with the power of fire, we'll get to that in just a moment, escaped the edge of the sword, we'll get to that in just a moment, were made strong out of weakness, put foreign armies to flight, became mighty in war. This is what was going on with Gideon, a group of 300 men. Or what about Barak? Barak was another judge. We find out from Judges chapter 4, he was a military leader. He had a small army of about 10,000 men. He goes up against Sisera. Sisera had 900 iron chariots and, and he obeys the word of the Lord through, through Deborah. And again, he routs this foreign army, Barak. And then he says, Samson. Now you wonder, why is Samson on the list? Samson was a man that had a lust problem with foreign women. And you know, Samson, the long hair and the strength, but at the end of Samson's life, In Judges chapter 16, in a moment of humiliation, you remember the story? Samson's got his eyes plucked out, and the Philistines call Samson out to entertain them in the temple of their false god, Dagon. And Samson's out there in a moment of weakness. He's lost his strength, and he prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, in this final moment of humiliation, would you bless me and give me strength? And what does he do? He leans against the two pillars and they come crashing down upon the people and he kills more people in that one instance than he did in his entire life. He was made powerful out of weakness. What about Jephthah? Jephthah was another judge, a little shady character. He was the son of a prostitute. He had an army that went up against the Ammonites. And as you find out from the story of Jephthah, he made this rash vow that ended up killing his only daughter. I'll just tell you this, side note, parentheses. This may be a weird way to put it. If you want to get some rated R stuff in the Bible, go read the book of Judges. You can't find anything worse on TV than the book of Judges. It's pretty sick stuff, but it shows you the downward spiral of Israel during that period. Jephthah. Okay, David's next. What about David? Now again, we don't have time to focus on every one of these characters. The same thing the writer of Hebrews, he's going quickly. There's a lot of stories we can tell about David. David and Goliath is probably the most famous story. What did David say when everybody was sitting around in the valley wondering who was going to go out and fight Goliath? In 1 Samuel 17, 26, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love David. Who is this guy? Let me just go out there and take him. And David goes out there. And what does David say? He's he's armed with just that little slingshot. First Samuel seventeen, forty-five through forty-seven. Then David said to the Philistine You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What do we know about David? Go down to verse 33 again. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. Did David conquer kingdoms? He united Israel into one kingdom. Enforced justice. David was a king who enforced justice. He obtained promises. So you've got David. And then you've got Samuel. Samuel. Samuel's an interesting character. Samuel's a transitionary character. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And God used Samuel in a mighty way to prepare the people for the anointing of King David. And especially when the Philistines were coming upon Israel and they were terrified, Samuel intercedes on their behalf in 1 Samuel 7 at Mizpah. And, and, and he prays on behalf of the people. And, and Samuel's just this great, mighty leader that proclaims the word of the Lord his entire life. And then you have the prophets. Generic. We know who the prophets are, right? Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these, those books with weird names. Obadiah, Zechariah, Isaiah, Hezekiah. He's not a prophet, but sometimes you just kind of like to get all those IA I, names in there. Okay, so this is where the end of the names comes, and now comes the stories. And hopefully you're familiar with these stories, and even kids can know these stories. Let's just look at these stories. Look at verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, probably David, enforced justice, David, obtained promises, Stop the mouths of lions. You guys tell me, who is that? Daniel and the lion's den. As a matter of fact, what does Daniel 6, 22 through 23 say? My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So it doesn't specifically mention Daniel, but you got the story of Daniel and lion's den. Okay, what's the next thing on our list? Quench the power of fire. Who do we know that is? Who were Daniel's friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fiery furnace. The three men that were thrown into the fiery furnace because they did not bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. We find this in Daniel 3. And I love this passage of scripture. Daniel 3, 16 through 19. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he ordered their furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now notice the radical faith of these three men. What do they say? King, first of all, we don't need to answer you. Number two, God's going to save us. Number three, if God doesn't save us, we're still going into that fire because we're not bowing. Radical faith. Now we know from later on they're thrown into the fiery furnace, right? And they look down there and they say, I thought we put three men in there, but we see another fourth one. And if you remember VeggieTales, he's all shiny. You remember that? It's probably Jesus is the fourth man in there. And they come out and not a hair on their head is singed, and they don't even smell like smoke. Amazing stories. Okay, let's keep going here. Escaped the edge of the sword. Who do we know escaped death from the sword many times? David. David escaped from Saul. Also, we know that Elijah escaped from the sword of the ruthless queen Jezebel in 1 Kings 19. And then we keep going on here. We're made strong out of weakness. That could be Gideon. That could be Samson. That could be David. Became mighty in war. It could be all those guys put foreign armies to flight. But then in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. There were two stories in the Old Testament of two women whose sons were resurrected. If you remember from 1 Kings 17, there was the poor widow from Sidon. Her son was resurrected by Elijah. Then later on in 2 Kings chapter 4, there was a wealthy woman, a Shunammite woman. Her son was resurrected from the dead by Elisha. Okay, these are the mighty acts of faith from these victorious warriors. They did a lot of great things for the Lord. They did amazing feats. God did amazing things. They stopped the mouth of lions. They were mighty warriors. All of these things were triumphant and powerful feats of strength through their obedience. And we can look at this list starting all the way back at the very beginning of Hebrews 11 and say, now wait a minute. These are the superstars of the Bible. This is the A team, if you will. I am never going to be one of these people. I'm never going to be a Noah. I'm never going to be a Daniel. I'm never going to be a Moses. I can't do that. Now, let me just remind you of something. We've been talking about faith all these months. Faith does not mean perfection, it means obedience. Obedience. I mean, a lot of these guys had some major sin problems, if you think about it. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied. Isaac was a poor father. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses had an anger problem so much that it prevented him from getting into the promised land. Rahab was a prostitute. Right after Gideon routs this foreign army with this 300 men, he plunges into some gross idolatry samson was a man of uncontrollable lust you know samson and delilah think about jephthah jephthah made this rash vow where his daughter comes in and she ends up getting killed and what could we say about david committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband uriah murdered are these people that were perfect No, they had some major sin in their life. But God used them to do some powerful things. They were fallen. They were weak. They got sidetracked. They weren't radical at all times. They were people that were sinners. And God used them. So remember this. It's not so much the greatness of your faith, but the greatness of the object of your faith. Who's the object of our faith? jesus sometimes our faith may be hanging on by a shred but jesus is greater than even the weakness of our faith so we have faith in an amazing god he's not looking for perfection or none of us would be here he's looking for humble obedience so these are the the stories of men and women who did mighty things for god but let me ask you a question is that always the case are you always mighty for god is it always powerful? Are we ever guaranteed anywhere in Scripture to be successful? Maybe the, world, the way the world defines success. What about persecution? What about the hard times? What about the opposition? What about when things don't go our way? Well, I'm thankful that the writer of Hebrews gives us another story here. Now we move into the other list. The list shifts to those heroes who were empowered to persevere through the most extreme of difficulties. Look at the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured. Now, this is probably something that did not happen in the actual biblical text. If At the end of Malachi and before Matthew, you have an intertestamental period of 400 years and you have some uninspired writings. And in 2 Maccabees, which is an uninspired writing, you find out about this 90-year-old scribe named Eleazar. Eleazar was tortured because he refused to recant his faith to God and he refused to eat pork. Now, when they talked about tortured, here's what the original language means, okay? They would stretch you out on a rack and use your stomach as a drum and beat you to death. That's the way they tortured people back then. Some were tortured. But notice what it says there. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. To a better life. That word better shows up all through Hebrews. Now, remember, the, the widow and, and the rich woman in Elijah and Elisha's situations, their sons were raised to life, right? They came back to life. Lazarus was raised to life. But see, it's good coming back to life after death, but you're going to have to die again. Remember, Lazarus died again. There's eternal life. And I think what the writer's saying is that Hebrew church, you may be facing the worst pipe of persecution. And if they kill you, remember, You've got heaven waiting for you. You've got resurrection to a better life. You've got eternal life. You will never die. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Probably most definitely talking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He was, he was mocked. He was flogged. As a matter of fact, that's all you read about Jeremiah. He's been put in jail all the time. Jeremiah 20, verse 2. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin Gate at the house of the Lord. Jeremiah 37, 15. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. Some were tortured. Some were beaten. Look at verse 37. Some were stoned. This is one of the saddest stories, I think, in the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah went and preached a message to the nation of Israel, and they stoned him in God's house, in the temple. In Second Chronicles 24, 20-21, we find these words. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the sons of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he's forsaken you. But they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the courts of the house of the Lord. Now Jesus himself got in the face of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and accused them of the same thing. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 35, hear what Jesus says. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, where does Hebrews 11 start? Who's the first character? Abel. And so Jesus is saying that all throughout the years, you've persecuted my people. Now, this is not in Scripture, but it's also the traditional view that Jeremiah was stoned. Jeremiah, during the exile, went down to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt. He preaches a message of judgment to the Jews living down in Egypt. They stoned Jeremiah. Some were sawn in two. Did you know that was in the Bible? Now, this is not in the Bible, the the actual sawing in two, but it's probably talking about Isaiah, the prophet. During the reign of Manasseh, Manasseh was issuing threats against Isaiah. The traditional ancient Jewish view is that Isaiah went and fled into the hill country, hid himself in a tree. They came and found him, and they saw the tree in half, thus, sawing Isaiah in half as well. Some were killed by the sword. Uriah the prophet was killed by the sword in 1 Kings 18. It says, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Probably talking about Elijah and Elisha. It was often the, 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 the clothing of a prophet to go around in, in camel skin and goat skin. 2 Kings 1.8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elisha the Tishbite. And then notice what else it says of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens of caves in the earth. Oftentimes when persecution hit, these prophets, where did they have to go? They had to run into the hill country. They had to hide out. They had to go live in caves. They had to go live in the desert. They they couldn't be in the city for fear of being killed. So this is the story here of these people who experienced extreme, extreme hardships. But notice what verse 38 says the very beginning there, of whom the world was not worthy. This world was not worthy of these people. The writer of Hebrews is saying, as wicked and godless as this world is that persecutes these men, they're not worthy of these men. These men died for their faith. And it would have been a great encouragement to this Hebrew church, because they were, ex- they were experiencing persecution. They were experiencing imprisonment. And for the writer to say, look, You may be experiencing all this pressure from the world, but the world's not worthy of you. You will die and go to a better place. Now, verses 39 and 40 are a little bit difficult, and I've had to think about what exactly he's trying to say here. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty amazing. He brings things to a close, and he includes us. Let's look at verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised. First thing we see in this verse is that both the triumphant victors and the tragic victims were commended for their faith. Remember chapter 11, verse 2, how this all started? For by it the people of old received their commendation. Same word. They were commended, they received their commendation. The word really means here that God himself stepped up to the witness stand and gave a testimony saying, I put my stamp of approval on the faith of these who died. God has written about them in his word. God is the ultimate one who commended them for their faith. And so God is always pleased to recognize faith. I mean, if why are we doing this? if there's no purpose behind it. Now, we need to be careful. We don't earn our salvation by our good works, but God is pleased when his people live by faith. When we show that radical, obedient faith, God is pleased when we do that. But secondly, and this is amazing, notice what it says there in verse 39. All of these, starting back with Abel, through the whole list of all these people we've been looking at all these months, they did not receive what was promised. Abel didn't, Noah didn't, Abraham didn't, Moses didn't, Joseph didn't, David didn't, Jeremiah didn't, Isaiah didn't, Daniel didn't, Samuel didn't. I can go on and on. They did not receive what was promised. So we've got to ask a simple question. What was promised? What did they not receive? And the answer lies in the fact that they never got to see who the Messiah. They never got to see Jesus. It wasn't until Jesus came and died on the cross that he instituted the new covenant. They were saved by faith. Okay, I believe these Old Testament people went to heaven. But they never got to see the Messiah in the flesh, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. They never got to see that. And notice the shift of wording in verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I mean, up to this point, he's talked about them, right? These people, these people, by faith, by faith. And all of a sudden, he says, God has provided something better for us? And what in the world does that mean? And they're not perfect until they're included in us? these people weren't perfect. Now, 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 what does the word perfect mean? The word perfect means complete. It means whole. It means that God had to do something in order for them to get what they received. As a matter of fact, go, go, go back a few verses in your Bible. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 for just a moment. And look and see what the writer says there in Hebrews 10, 1. He uses the same word perfect there, but he uses it as a verb. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, this is where it gets amazing. Think about these Old Testament people. Noah, Moses, Abraham, as great as their faith was, as amazing as they had this relationship with God, they were not complete until Jesus came. They were not complete until Christ came and died and made them complete in the new covenant. As you go down to verse 14 of chapter 10, you see that word again. Ten fourteen. For by a single offering, this is speaking of Jesus, when he died on the cross, he perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. Now this is amazing. There is a privilege that you and I have that Noah and Abraham and David and those guys never had. They could only look forward to Jesus. Types and shadows. Kind of like last week when the kids did the puzzle piece. They only had bits and pieces of the puzzle. We're on this side of the cross. We look back and say, we've seen the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting that the writer says they're not perfect apart from us. So if you want to know who your grandparents are, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. If you're a Christian here this morning, those are your folk. Those are your people. Those are the people who you belong to. You are in a long line of people starting all the way from Adam up to the present of people. And we'll look at this next week, this great cloud of witnesses who has gone before us. And you see, they could only look forward with anticipation. You and I look back with full assurance that the price has been paid. And and so we have the promise here. Jesus says, God has provided something better for us. Now, let me just say to you, God may never actually take you out of a difficult situation. We'd wish he would do that at times, wouldn't we? God may never take you out of a situation, but he will promise to what? Be there through it with you. He will never leave or forsake you. He loves you. He will be there through it. Now here's the challenge. This is what I had to think about. You get to the end of this and you're like, okay, so what? All these guys did this stuff by faith. So what? Here's the challenge. If these Old Testament people did radical things for Christ and they never saw Christ, they never saw the resurrection, and they did these amazing, risk-taking, passionate acts of faith with just this much information, How much more should we be people of faith who have the whole picture? John Calvin said it this way. And I say amen to John Calvin the way he said it. A small spark of light, small spark of light led them to heaven. When the sun of righteousness shines over us, how can we excuse ourselves if we still hold on tightly to this earth? In other words, what he's saying is this. These guys had types and shadows. They didn't have the full picture. They didn't have anything that we've got. They did not have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They did not know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They were just looking forward to that in the distance. They weren't quite sure, through a glass dimly, but in the present, they lived by faith and gave their all for the little bit of information they knew. We are on this side of the cross. We look back at the finished work of Jesus. We should be those that have even greater faith in these in Hebrews 11. I can't even believe that in my mind. Can you believe that? We are to have greater faith in these guys because we have the full picture. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean these people weren't saved. It doesn't mean these people didn't go to heaven. It just means they didn't have the full picture yet. They weren't in the new covenant until Christ had instituted that. So, let's go back to verse 1 for just a moment. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Go down to verse 6. Without faith... It is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. This whole sermon series has been about living by faith. And remember, faith is not some passive, wimpy, on-the-sidelines type of, of activity. Faith is active. Faith is passionate. Faith is energetic. Faith is dynamic. Faith works. Faith takes risks faith does what god calls you to do with immediate obedience faith is a lifestyle and what does james say james 1:22 but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself i'm just challenge you this morning it's a challenge to me are you willing to take risks are you willing to have a faith that's radical Are you willing to live this life, not business as usual, but live this life passionately sold out for Jesus Christ so that he receives all the glory due his name? Would that God raise up a people that would not just sit on the sidelines and say, I'm going to twiddle my thumbs as a Christian. I'm just going to sit back passively. No! Let us be a people who step up to the plate and say, I'm going to risk it all for Jesus Christ because he's worth it. I've seen the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I've seen the empty tomb. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. The tomb is empty. The Holy Spirit has come. There is no excuse for us not to go and conquer this world for Christ because we have the resurrected Savior on our side, something these guys could never say. And when we get to heaven, we're going to have some great stories to talk about with these men and women. But let's not wait to heaven to talk about it. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm sorry for yelling at you.